Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, folks, here we go. It's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Welcome in, everybody. I'm David Summers. This is the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now, we step back into the ring and back into time. We get hooked up with the Tennessee stud, from the Great Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. What's going on, stud? Oh, geez, man. Uh, just uh, living the life, Dave. No. Uh, got a little rain today already. Now we got some sunshine. Uh, but, uh, you know, the great thing is uh, we don't do no sweating here, man. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a, that's a pretty, uh, almost a gross way of putting it, but uh, that's kind of the case, man. Uh, we got the uh, nice uh, low humidities here most of the time, even if you got the rain and if you got the hot day. So yeah. it's a uh, it's sweet here in Southeast Alabama. We would be somewhat envious of that because we take a shower, walk out under the porch, and we're sweating. So yeah, it's just yeah. like that every day, especially during yeah. the summertime, and even Remind into me. yeah, even in, bring a Tampa a little bit. Yeah, yeah, even yeah. into the fall. So. Anyway, good, yeah. good. Let us just understand that we're so happy when we say good for you, stud. Anyway, whatever. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, that was heartfelt. All right. Listen, Ron, I've got to, I got to say the stud cast, it seems like to me are more history filled than ever. Your two Southeastern territories were built on wrestling history and done by no other wrestling company in the world. Southeastern Knoxville required a lot of work to just get the thing off the ground, but the Gulf Coast Territory was on fire by the sixth month in business. That's incredible. So in the last episode, you introduced something entirely new, teasing us about what's coming in 1979. So are we going to get some some more of that today, Stud? Uh, well, yeah, I'm afraid you are, Dave. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, 1979 in Southeastern uh, kind of changed everything for me and for my business partners down there in the Gulf Coast area. Uh, you know, and, uh, and then the 1975, uh, you know, 1979 uh, wrestling war in Knoxville is a pretty fascinating story, man. And, and uh, it actually began a long time before that, before it actually happened, before there was competition, uh, 
the, there were already things happening that, that created all of the 1979 wrestling war. So, so we're going to get a little more information about it in each episode, kind of like we did last week. And as, as the stud cast moved toward 1979, uh, we'll, uh, we'll have a little more information as we go along, but, uh, I just want to, uh, it's going to take a long time to be able to do this properly. And I, mm-hmm. and I, I think if I don't tell and set the story up and uh, all the things that was going on to, to make it happen, I'm afraid once we get it started and we're into it, it'd mm-hmm. be too late for me to do all that. So mm-hmm. I'm going to throw us a little bit of that into every stud cast here for a while. Cool. And as the summer of 1978 was winding down, you know, Southeastern booking, was uh, getting even more creative. And um, I think my brother and I were being pretty creative as it was, but man, we were about to introduce the first interactive wrestling event in the history of the sport. And uh, two stud casts from now, we're gonna talk about that one entirely in its entirety. And uh, so, uh, you know, we're, we're fans, uh, you know, would actually uh, become part of the event. That's why we called it an interactive event. The fans are going to become part of an event and a one fan is going to win a fantastic prize based upon a, a choosing of the winner of a two night tournament. And uh, the winner of that tournament is going to get a match against Harley race about two weeks after this. So uh, there's a lot of good things going on, man. And a lot of good things to talk about. Yeah. Okay. So let me see if I've got all this together. If I got it all right. Not only are you starting to point to 1979, you're, you're looking towards that already, but you're going to end the summer of 1978 with a two nights in a row tournament that involves fans from the audience with some kind of huge prize going to the winner, right? That's correct, man. Uh, you, you, you got that really, really smoothly. <laughs> Thank Dave. you. Thank you very much. You know, so uh, <laughs> you're exactly right. I mean, you know, uh, doing something uh, that had never been done before, uh, operating and booking two territories at once, that kind of opened the door for me and my brother uh, as the bookers, me in the south and him in the north, to uh, allow fans to see things that had never been done before. So that's about what we're going to do here in a couple of uh, stud casts down the road. And is we're going to do something that's never been done before. And I don't know that's ever been done since. All right. Well, cool. So in the meantime, you got me supercharged and saddled up to ride. So I guess the question is what direction are we going to be heading today in this stud cast number 265? Where to stud? Well, man, uh, hey, we're going to start out in Southeastern Knoxville. Uh, and then the last episode, uh, we had the first ever Russian chain match which was going to lead this and this one to the second one uh, a week later. So we didn't just have one Russian chain match, and uh, then that was it for a while. We're going to have them back-to-back. Also in this one, we got two championship matches in the southeastern Knoxville territory uh, in the Knoxville card. They were added, man, to a a real grudge match, uh, which came out of that Jimmy Golden and Bob Roop loss of their southeastern tag belts. The week before when Bob Roop just turned flat, turned heel on Jimmy Golden and his dad. And, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy's father uh, got badly injured by Bob Roop. And it was uh, only the beginning of this little thing between the Jimmy Golden and Bob Roop. And we're going to discuss the TV that promoted the Coliseum card. 
that we're going to be talking about today, the results of the card and the attendance. And then we're going to stay in Tennessee, man, to continue that kind of deep dive into the into the all the little things that were happening that were going to have an effect on the Knoxville Wrestling War of 1979. Uh, plus, we're going to explore some highlights of the coming of age of Southeastern Wrestling uh, at the Wrestling Fans International Association Convention that was held at the Andrew Jackson Hotel in downtown Knoxville this same week, 44 years ago, basically. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we're actually uh, becoming, uh, we're, we're beginning to look like we're going to be a legitimate uh, territory, man. And uh, we've become, uh, uh, we, we've kind of uh, earned ourselves a place on the map of great territories at that time, by 1978. And then we're going to head south into southeastern Gulf Coast with a card from Pensacola this time. Uh, Pensacola's Municipal Auditorium on a Sunday night, August the 20th, 1978, which is just two days after the Knoxville Coliseum card that we're going to be talking about in the show. And we'll look at that uh, TV show that, we, that week. We'll get the results of that Pensacola card, and then uh, we'll talk about the attendance there. And after that, if we have the time, we're going to answer another learning tree question, man. Wow. All right. So it sounds like obviously another great ride stud. Who was on that Knoxville Coliseum card of August 18th, 1978? Well, Ted Allen was in the first match versus Gorgeous George Jr. Uh, great wrestler, Ted Allen. Uh, Gorgeous George Jr., not a slouch in, in his own right. Great way to open the card. Ron Slinker, who was returning from Southeastern Gulf Coast, he took on the new masked jawjacker in the second week there. It was his, his second week. Uh, and uh, just about everybody knew who it was. We haven't even really mentioned exactly who he was, but uh, everybody kind of knew who he was once they got a look at him. And uh, so then in a ladies' match, uh, we had a ladies' match on that card with uh, Joyce Cable against Lalani Kai, who was both trained by the fabulous Moolah, trained all of the girl wrestlers back in those days. And then the night uh, really began. Uh, Jimmy Golden uh, was in the next match, and he got his chance uh, for revenge for his father. And he was going to be taking on his former partner, Bob Root. Uh, we'll talk some about that match uh, from last week, too. Then the Southeastern tag titles were on the line, and they had new champions, Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson, who won the match because Bob Roop turned on Jimmy Golan. And uh, they were obviously Hickerson and Condry, presented by Ron Wright. And uh, they're going to be facing off against Kevin Sullivan and Rip Smith, a heck of a team of young wrestlers right there, two great young wrestlers at this point, 1978. Robert Fuller, my brother, was defending his newly won Southeastern belt against the former champion, Mongolian Stomper. And this time, the Stomper is not going to be managed by Gigi because Gigi cost him the title. Uh, this time, he's going to be managed by the masked jawjacker. <laughs> so last match was a return of one of the bloodiest matches in Southeastern history, another Russian chain match wow. with the great Malenko battle against Ronnie Garvin. All right, so that really is a tremendous card, Ron. Seven matches. What was on the TV six days before this night that set it all up? Well, let's open the show with a tight shot. And uh, and he he ran down the card as usual. 
uh, you know, uh, talked about what was going on today. And uh, this card, uh, this TV card was loaded, man, with action and videos. And when the camera backed away, uh, Jimmy Golden was sitting next to him. And behind them on the big set was a still shot of Bob Roop, uh, who was Jimmy's partner the night before. They had had their chance to win the championship. They had won the championship, and they were defending it. And uh, and uh, there's a shot of Jimmy, who's uh, covering uh, Phil Hickerson, about to get the pin. And there's a shot of, of Bob Roop about to stomp him in the back. So, uh, and obviously, that is going to prevent him from pinning Phil Hickerson and, uh, and them from winning their first uh, Southeastern Tag title defense. Uh, without Ron Wright even being at ringside. Mm-hmm. Ron Wright had already said, I won't be at ringside if you'll give my boys the shot to get the belts back. Mm-hmm. So let's start it off, man, the, this show with an apology to Jimmy and to the viewers right off the bat about what fans were going to see here in a few minutes. And, uh, and he was basically talking about a serious injury of Jimmy's father, Bill Golden, that happened that the night before. The, the TV here. So uh, Jimmy jumped on it from there. And uh, and he was pretty much, Rob says, uh, enraged by what Bob Roop had done to him. And he was even more mad about what Bob Roop had done to his father. And he asked the director, Jimmy, that is, to hold the video while he explained to Les and the studio audience and all the people at home about how stupid he had been to ever partner with a guy like Bob Roop. And he told a story about what many wrestlers had said to him when Bob Roop arrived in Southeastern Wrestling. Jimmy didn't know a whole lot about Bob Roop. Mm-hmm. He had spent, Roop spent a lot of years in Florida, and he'd spent some time in California by that point. And mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, uh, he had a bad reputation, and uh, Jimmy knew very little about it. And, uh, you know, he was told that Roop was nothing but a backstabber, and, uh, and he was not to be trusted, and that, that, uh, a lot of guys you used to say Root, Bob Root could be bought. Uh, and obviously, uh, last night, Jimmy's telling this, you know, he said to, to the fans, obviously, last night, uh, they'd all been right about what they told me mm. because Bob Root got bought by Ron Wright last night. Mm. Mm. And uh, so he, then he asked the director to play the video. And as soon as the video started to roll, Rob said Jimmy started to tear up a little bit, man, and his voice started cracking as he was describing everything that was happening on the screen. And uh, and first it uh, showed uh, him having Hickerson pinned and, and beat, basically, and that's when it showed uh, it hit the first time he got stabbed in the back by Bob Roop, uh, and uh, Roop stomped him in the back, and then uh, – he stopped him. Um, that obviously ended Jimmy from pinning Higgerson. He rolled off of there. And when he did, Bob Roop jerked him up and he piledrived him. And that really put him down for a lot longer. And uh, that gave, as Jimmy described it, Rob said, the backstabber more time to get his hands on his dad. So he described what Bob's shoulder, Bob Roop's shoulder breaker that was uh, being used in the video at that point mm-hmm. on his father. Uh, had done to many wrestlers in Florida and California. Hmm. It was an extremely dangerous hope. Uh, he did it to me a couple of times. Uh, wow, it was very, very painful, and it, it, and it broke a lot of guys' shoulders. And he described a horrible night, man, uh, you know, uh, and how he had put a lot of guys in the hospital with it, Jimmy, 
and uh, that uh, before Rupe ever got there, and he described the horrible night he'd just been through, man, uh, getting in the ambulance with his dad to ride to the hospital, uh, hearing the doctor tell him how bad his dad was hurt, and how long he's liable to be out and not be able to get around. And then uh, he said, uh, then he, he had to actually spent the night with him sleeping in a chair and the next morning, uh, he had to leave the hospital to come to TV. Uh, left his dad in the hospital. Mm. So uh, Jimmy thanked Les. He thanked Don Curtis. And he thanked the other Southeastern officials uh, for allowing him the opportunity to go head-to-head against the backstabber, Bob Roop, the next Friday night. So Les had said nothing. When Jimmy got up from the set uh, and he kind of wiped, Rob said he's wiping tears from his eyes and they walked away. That was the end of it. Wow. And uh studio audience gave him a huge standing ovation, uh, Les said. Uh, but uh, wow, it was, it was a, it was, it was a bad scene. Well, obviously a very heartfelt situation too, for Jimmy, especially. And uh, you, you don't see a show opening, open up, with a touching situation like that, Ron, a TV show, especially. So how did, how did your brother, the booker, how did, how did Rob follow that? Well, hey, he sent Bob Roop to the ring for the first match of the show. Oh, Rob, <laughs> Rob said the crowd went absolutely, absolutely nuts. Uh-huh. Bob Roop, you know, and, uh, in, in my opinion, uh, Roop was a natural heel. He was much better in that role than he ever was as a baby face to mm, me. Yeah. And, uh, and so Rube finished his opponent uh, with the second shoulder breaker that, that the Southeastern fans had ever seen. They had never seen this shoulder breaker the night before when he did it to Bill Golden. He did it to this kid he was working with on TV that day. Uh, and his opponent had to be not only carried from the ring, but he had to be taken to the hospital. So uh, it was the second person hospitalized from Bob Roop's shoulder breaker in less than 24 hours. So then Golden and Roop did the first interview. Uh, Jimmy promised, obviously, to get even for his father. And Bob Roop bragged and waved a wad of cash. He said he had earned the night before from who he called his great and generous friend. Uh, He didn't mention the name. He said he had been guaranteed another handful of cash coming next Saturday after he put Jimmy Golden in the same hospital with his father. Uh, all right. That's a pretty serious way to start this TV. So who was next, Ron? Well, Ron Wright and his champion, Dennis Condry, and they were the champions again now. They, Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson, they joined less at the set, and they watched the same video that Golden had just watched. I mean, and obviously they had a different slant on it. Uh, and uh, Wright had demanded equal time to explain their side of this story. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Rob said that he didn't end up doing much explaining of their side <laughs> of the story, but he spent a lot of time reminding Les of his prediction on last week's TV show mm-hmm. and uh, that the Goldens were going to get hurt because he had dangerous friends and, and he's going to use them if necessary, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, <laughs> you know, well, after Wright got that out of his mouth, Les got jumped right to the point. And he asked Ron Wright if Bob Roop was that dangerous friend of his. And uh, so Wright denied it, 
saying Bill Golden was just a thieving promoter that cheated wrestlers on their payoffs for years, that he and his brother Donnie, talking Ron, talking about his brother Don Wright, had wrestled for Bill Golden many years in Alabama uh, and uh, years ago, and that was why he couldn't afford to pay big money to Bob Roop. He couldn't have been the guy to give Bob Roop that money because Bill Golden didn't pay him years ago like <laughs> he should have. So <laughs> not a pretty flimsy excuse. Mm. And, but he did thank whoever had paid Roop and said he didn't mind if Roop put the other golden in the hospital, along with his daddy. <laughs> and and that if uh, Roop didn't like it next Friday, then his men would, uh, the next time Jimmy Golden got in the ring with them, they'd take care of it, uh, just like they had done the night before. And then he got into the old Ron Ride mode, and he said, just like they did the night before when they put a good old Tennessee dog whooping on them Goldens. It wasn't actually him, his team, that put the, the whipping on the Goldens. It was Bob Root that did yeah. the damage. Yeah. All right. I bet the studio audience had a field day with that. And I bet they let him know how they felt about those comments. So who, who followed that? Well, Rob said he couldn't remember when Ron Wright was booed like that, man. <laughs> Wright and his men were followed by two young stars, man, teaming up for the first time to go after the Southeastern Tag Belts the next Friday night. That was Kevin Sullivan and Rip Smith. And those two boys, Rob said, were absolutely on fire, man. And uh, they were kind of just honing their skills. They had not worked as partners uh, hardly at all. But uh, Rob said they looked like champions, man, in their first outing together. He said, wow, what a team they made. So so they got a great win. They're going to be going up against Ron Wright's team. And Rob said they had a great interview along with Wright and his tag champions in the next interview. And then we come to the personality profile, which was a heavily with a heavily patched up Ronnie Garvin, man. Yeah, and the result, as a result of that first ever Southeastern Russian chain match with Malenko the night before, uh, Rob said it was one of the bloodiest matches he'd ever seen, and uh, he said that uh, that uh, he Garvin might have been the winner, but Les said he didn't look like it. Uh, Les told me until wow. uh, Les cut away. He thought that Garvin looked really bad, but once he cut away to hear from Boris Malenko during mm -hmm. the profile, he said, Malenko looked worse than Garvin. <laughs> it's like, wow, these guys beat each other to pieces, you wow. know? So, so they, it was so bad that uh, Les said they showed none of the Russian chain match because uh, it was just too violent and there was too much blood involved in it. And uh, so both men spoke about that fact uh, and that this was going to be no different than the other one, you know, and, uh, and it was going to be that for the first time in history, um, Malenko said, and Malenko had been in, wow, maybe hundreds of these matches. The first time he had ever had a back-to-back -back Russian chain match two weeks in a row. So Robert joined Les at the set for the next segment, and he watched his win over the Mongolian Stomper. Uh, from the night before when gorgeous George Jr. made the critical mistake, uh, trying to take advantage of the referee being down. And, uh, and, uh, he, he got his, uh, he got something out of his little uh, pants suit that he always wore. And, uh, Stomper had Robin a full Nelson. And when, uh, Gigi went to give him the, the big smash, uh, Rob did duck and, uh, 
And <laughs> obviously, uh, the stomper took the shot from GG, and Rob got the pin. So um, Robert stayed with Les at the set for the next match when his opponent uh, was in the ring. And that was uh, the Mongolian stomper came to the ring. But oddly enough, uh, he was escorted to the ring not by Gigi, but uh, by the newcomer to Southeastern, the masked jawjacker. <laughs> so Rob and Les, uh, you know, uh, they both felt like this masked mass man was someone that Rob had beaten in a loser leave Southeastern match a couple of weeks earlier. <laughs> and, uh, and they discussed that with Gorgeous George Jr., uh, and in fact, the gorgeous George Jr. cost Stomper the belt the night before. And if this masked jock jacker was who they thought, you know, he had a lot of experience of handling the Stomper <laughs> because he, he had been his manager for a long time. So this most unusual manager for the Stomper got plenty of attention after the Mongol had won the TV match uh, when both sides went out there and were interviewed. And as well as questions about who was now the Stompers manager. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, fans wanted to know. Les wanted to know. Uh, Rob wanted to know. Everybody wanted to know. Uh, what's going on here? Who's the manager now, the Jaw Jacker or Gorgeous Georgia Jr.? Mm. So then the, the Russian Boris Malenko, he closed out the TV. And, wow, again, he stomped the life out of another one of those young guys. <laughs> that uh, were coming down, and I guarantee you when they got there and they saw who they were going to oh the ring with, God. They, they, they felt like, wow, I should have stayed home today. Can you imagine some young guy like that who's excited because I'm going to be on the TV show today, but I don't know who I'm wrestling yet. The, yeah. The, sto yeah. the stomper? I know how that felt, man. Oh, uh, my God. I first started, uh, I had that on occasion myself a time or two, man. Oh, you know? that's funny. All right, that is a, truly, that's a loaded TV show right there, Stud. Stars and videos. All right, what about the results of this big card, August 18th, 1978? What's well, in the Coliseum again. Uh, Gorgeous George Jr. got a win over Ted Allen. He, he beat somebody. He had been, he lost to Rip Smith a couple of times. Uh, he had a draw and, you know, he finally beat somebody. Uh, then the masked jawjacker and Ron Slinker wrestled to a 15 minute time limit draw. Slinker was back. Uh, he was feeling good. And obviously uh, he hung in there with a the masked jawjacker and uh, neither one of them got a win. Joyce Gable won her match over Lilani Kai. And then Jimmy Gold and Bob Root, man, it was their turn. And uh, both of them got disqualified. It was, a uh, Rob said, uh, wow, a bloody, bloody, pretty bloody affair, man. And the referee just stopped it and called it a no contest. There was no winner to it. Uh, and then Ron Wright, Southeastern Tag Champions, they successfully defended the belts against Sullivan and Smith. Uh, and oddly enough, Sullivan and Smith got disqualified. So uh, that kind of cost them from maybe winning the belts. Uh, they went a little too far as young guys. I think they got carried away, and uh, they got themselves in a position where they got themselves disqualified. Then Robert Fuller lost the Southeastern belt. Uh, Rob lost the belt back to the Mongolian stomper, and obviously it came with a lot of help from the masked jawjacker. And then Ronnie Garvin was on his way to another Russian chain match victory over the great Malenko. He had Malenko down. He 
had beaten him the week before. He had him down. He had drug him around the ring once, and he had to drag him around and touch all four posts a second time. And uh, during the course of that second round, the masked jawjacker got involved in that match. He came down, and uh, Garvin started taking care of him. And when that happened, the stomper came down. <laughs> and uh, that left the stomper and the jawjacker and Malenko pounding on Garvin. So uh, Rob, back in the back, sees what's going on, and he went down uh, to take care of at least uh, trying to even it up a little bit. Wow. All right. I bet it was a good night. How would you guys do in attendance on that one, Ron? Well, it was over 5,000 again, uh, 5,200. Mm. 5,200 people saw this one. Uh, we're, uh, continuing in that 5,000 range. Uh, sometimes in the park, we get, uh, close to 6,000. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, we're doing pretty well. All right. All right. Stud, you said that we would dive a little further into something that was happening in the other two territories in the state of Tennessee about this time of year in 1978, that was going to have an effect on Knoxville's wrestling war of 79. I think that's interesting. What can you tell us on that? Well, I said last week that there were three territories in Tennessee, 1978, uh, on the Western side of the state was the Memphis territory. Uh, it had three major cities. Actually, it had four major cities. Um, it had Memphis, it had Louisville, Kentucky and Lexington, Kentucky and Evansville, Indiana in that territory. Lots of smaller cities as well, but four major cities in that market. In the center of the state was the Mid-American Territory. It was owned by Nick Goulis and my grandfather, Roy. Uh, Roy is pretty much out of it at this point. He's up in age, and uh, so Nick Goulis is running this. And uh, in that territory, the major cities were Nashville, Birmingham, Alabama, and Chattanooga, Tennessee. Then over there on the eastern side of the state was me, Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, we were in the Tri-Cities, Kingsport, Johnson City, and Bristol, which was in the northeastern part of the state, and obviously in Knoxville. So in late 1978, both Memphis and the Mid-American Territory, based in Nashville, began to have problems, drawn crowds. Their business dropped off dramatically, and uh, my father, Edward Welch, uh, better known as Buddy Fuller, and Jerry Jarrett were partners in the Memphis Territory. Uh, Nick Goulis was in control of the Mid-American Territory because Roy had kind of uh, retired and backed away. So both territories, in my opinion, uh, at that point had a talent problem and uh, not enough quality wrestlers. Uh, And, you know, it wasn't just the talent. I think it was the booker, too. I think their bookers were. We had been there too long, and they needed dramatic change in talent, and mm. they needed some new ideas. Mm. So, uh, so uh, you know, uh, on the other hand, man, I had a I had a quality, a surplus of great talent, not only in the Knoxville territory, but in the Gulf Coast territory down south as well. I also had two good bookers, not counting myself. Bob Armstrong was handling a lot of stuff in the South, and Rob was handling the North. So uh, I, my two-territory plan that I had had when I decided to, I wanted to buy the Gulf Coast territory as compared to Ohio, uh, my, two, my two-territory plan kind of uh, 
accepted uh, by the other owners in the company, Southeastern Gulf Coast, which was Bob Armstrong, my partner, Rob, uh, Jimmy Golden, uh, Roy Lee Welch, kind of uh, several family members. Uh, they they liked my idea for the territory. And, uh, and the idea was, uh, you know, once a year, the two bookers would swap territories. And when they swapped territories, the talent went with them as well. So that basically gave both territory uh, every year uh, new ideas and uh, an arrival of new talent. Every other year, those great stars that had been gone then for a year mm -hmm. started returning. Hmm. So after each year, when the fans were beginning to grow kind of a little weary of the same wrestlers, suddenly they were beginning to see the return of their stars from a year earlier. Hmm. So not just in one territory, but this was in both territories. They were seeing it in both territories. So it kind of automatically rejuvenated interest and business every year. And that kept the fans happy. And obviously the wrestlers were happy as well because towns were big. Uh, money was good. So it was in the fall of 1978 that my father and Jerry Jerry, with their business way down and badly in need of a change of talent, as well as a new booker, in my opinion, that made an offer to my brother for a substantial amount of money to become their booker. And that alone was enough to dramatically affect the two territory plan that I developed, what I just talked about, the changing talent when you change the bookers and, uh, and uh, being able to keep your same guys for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, it had a bad effect, obviously, uh, uh, that uh, in southeastern no Knoxville, you know, and uh, shortly thereafter, you know, uh, I agreed to let Rob go and, and to go ahead and help him. Wow. And then they came back and had Rob make some offers to some of my wrestlers to uh -huh. join them wow. in the Memphis Territory. <laughs> Wait. Wait. Are you kidding? Dude. Dude. There, there, I'm kind of giggling about it, yeah. laughing about it, but uh, yeah. gosh, you know, it, it was it was it was not a laughing matter. Yeah, I, listen, I don't know anything about handling a wrestling territory, but that that sounds a little suspect. I mean, was this commonly done, and when when did it begin? Well, well, no, it was not commonly done, you know, and, uh, but, but I did want to help him, you know, uh, it was my father and, yeah. uh, you know, and then my brother was involved in it, yeah. you know, so basically I didn't really try to block him, even though I knew it was going to adversely affect the, the Southeastern Gulf Coast territory, because that's mm -hmm. where Rob was supposed to be going in 1979. Right. He was going to be moving down there. He was going to take <laughs> a lot of these Knoxville stars <laughs> down there. And we were going to bring back the stars of the Bob Armstrongs and uh, me and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that crew from the South. So uh, this was basically, uh, you know, it was basically is about that year in 1979 that this was was starting to happen, man. Wow. All right, so I can see this 1979 thing, Knoxville wrestling war story, is going to be absolutely fascinating. So tell us about the wrestling convention that came to Knoxville on the same weekend as the same card we've already discussed in this studcast. Okay, uh, Southeastern, you know, had finally made a reputation around the world as the home of great wrestling and great wrestlers. Uh, and uh, this was a huge fan convention. This was an 
big convention that traveled from one city to another, and uh, they not only had, they they not only changed cities every year, but they even had conventions in other countries. So, uh, and the name of it was the Wrestling Fans International Convention Association. Uh, big, big, huge, huge uh, fan convention. And hundreds of fans spent the weekend in Knoxville. And all of them gathered, obviously, in the huge Andrew Jackson Hotel, which was in downtown Knoxville. And uh, they also all came to the Knoxville matches on the Friday night. They're going to be there Friday and Saturday. They weren't going to leave till Sunday. Some of those people even drove to Harlan, Kentucky on Saturday night to see us wrestle hmm. in Harlan, Kentucky. These were huge wrestling fans. Yeah. So. During the course of this, because they were having it in Knoxville, uh, they were presenting awards uh, to stars from all over the country, all over the world. And uh, so they presented a lot of our Babyfaces stars, uh, because we were local there, awards. Mm -hmm. uh, the wrestling TV show itself, Southeastern Wrestling, was awarded the best television wrestling show in the world. Wow. Uh, I was presented the Ring Wrestling Man of the Year Award for 1978. <laughs> Les Thatcher received an award as well, and uh, many other guys in the company, uh, uh, the wrestlers, as well as guys that worked in the company itself. Uh, they worked hand-in-hand -hand with the convention members. Wow. It was a great event. It was a, it was a super deal for us. It kind of put us on the map in a way. Oh, it sounds like it. And it sounds like Southeastern was really on the map and in the limelight in the summer of 1978. Who were some of the famous people that attended this convention? Well, gosh, there were people, famous people from all over the country. Uh, one of the most famous was Bill Apter, who happened to be the publisher of many of the famous wrestling magazines at that time. Uh, uh, they came and uh, they were part of these conventions. And so after came and he wrote articles and he did stories on a lot of our stars. Uh, uh, we really kind of, uh, I kind of backed away from not being in this limelight to, to putting us in the limelight here a little bit. And, uh, and uh, there was mm -hmm. another young star that was at that convention mm -hmm. who uh, was just getting started. Actually, he was taking photographs. Uh, I think he was probably in his teens, his late teens at this point. <laughs> and uh, that was the uh, inimitable uh, Jim Cornette, man. <laughs> oh. I remember the young Jim Cornette running around like crazy, man. Just a big mark <laughs> taking pictures. So, wow. <laughs> So, wow, it was, it was a heck of a deal. It was a three-day affair. And, uh, wow, it kind of put us on the map. Yeah, I'll say, and what a great first half of the show, Stud. Hey, I tell you what, when we return after the break in the Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory for a Pensacola, Florida card, card in the home of Southeastern Gulf Coast, and we're going to finish up with our learning tree question of the day. We're going to work that in, and that is going to happen when we come back. We'll continue with part two, episode number 265 is coming up next right here on this Studcast.
TNstud.com is where you find Brutus. Ron's novel has become one of the most talked about in the world. Many reviews call it or compare it to Jaws. It's a roller coaster ride with the largest lion ever in captivity into the most visited park in America, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It's a rare thriller with a story that could actually happen. An edge-of-your-seat page-turner that will shock you and have you as afraid of the mountains as Jaws did the ocean. Get it now at TNStud.com. Click Stud Store. Only $29.99. Specially autographed to you from the stud himself with free shipping. Welcome back in. Episode number 265 is called Tennessee Return Chain. And golf, hair versus belts. All right, so, Ron, in the southeastern Gulf Coast Territory, let's start there. This stud cast, we're going to get a card from Pensacola, Florida. So tell us what kind of card Pensacola got as compared to, like, Mobile or even Montgomery. Well, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the title of this one, like you said, is uh, Tennessee's going to get that second chain match. And, uh in the southeastern Gulf Coast, is going to get the hair versus belt match, uh, and uh, that's that's we're going to get to that hair versus belt part in this man, which uh, really I think fans are going to be pretty intrigued by this. So, uh, you know, we're going to talk. We we'll take a look at the Pensacola card of August the twentieth, nineteen seventy-eight, which was two days after the card in Knoxville that we just talked about uh, in the first part of the studcast. And so bear in mind that Pensacola fans saw the same TV as the fans in Mobile, Alabama. The two cities were only 50 miles apart. The Mobile's 50 miles west of Pensacola. And that meant that the cards, obviously, but in Mobile, as compared to Pensacola, had to be very different. Uh, so, uh, so since this was our first year in southeastern Gulf Coast, very few of the fans were driving back and forth each week to see matches in both cities, just getting started. So the Mobile fans watched their Mobile matches. The Pensacola fans went to the Pensacola matches, and there was very few people back and forth. But over the next few years, as this territory just catches fire, the interest and the crowds are going to grow so that the number of fans – that would make this 100-mile round trip 50 miles over to Pensacola if you lived in Mobile and 50 miles back, 100 miles round trip, they started coming flocking to both cities. So you would get you would get a lot of people coming to Pensacola matches and a lot of people from Pensacola going to Mobile matches. And uh, it made the crowds even bigger, mm-hmm. but it also showed how interested the fans were that they were willing to make these hundred mile round trips once a week to see two matches, Mm -hmm. uh, rather two cards rather than one. Mm -hmm. So Pensacola ran most of the time on a Sunday night and you know how many different ways I had, uh, Dave, uh, to advertise my business. Right. So, you know, from billboards to newspaper ads, right. radio commercials, the TV spots and some markets. Uh, so in Pensacola, I used newspaper ads, but I had another totally unique way of advertising wrestling in that city specifically. And I doubt that it had ever been used before or after by any wrestling company anywhere in the world. So I lived on Pensacola Beach. Uh, in the summertime, this particular card 
was on August the 20th, 1978. It's a great example. It's in the middle, toward the end of the summer, but it's still a great day to go to the beach. There were as many as 100,000 people on the beach there, man, Sunday afternoon down in that part of the country. Wow. So, uh, so how do you think, Dave, I was going to reach those people on a hot Sunday afternoon? Mm. Well, beach me, stud. What'd you do? <laughs> Every Sunday, man, when the beaches were full, I hired a plane ah. banner, <laughs> down the beach, man. There you go. That advertised wrestling. It, basically, the banner said something to the effect of wrestling tonight, municipal <laughs> auditorium, downtown. <laughs> right? Hey, if you so, want to get their attention on the Gulf Coast, that's what you do in Panama City, Pensacola. Uh, that's exactly what you do. Yeah. That's exactly what you do. Yeah. And in that part of the country, it was pretty much a common practice. So, you know, and sometimes, uh, uh, you know, I'd even fly two planes rather than have just the one plane. Uh, I'd have two planes and they fly in a tandem team, right? Uh, and the first one would go through with that, uh, you know, Wrestling Tonight Municipal Auditorium downtown. And, uh, and the second one, in the case I had a really strong card, for example, uh, I remember running one time, uh, the first plane uh, had the Tonight uh, Pensacola Auditorium, and the second plane flew a banner that said, The Hulk versus Andre the Giant. Five <laughs> <That> matches. <laughs> all right, so I don't know if all your fans realize it or not, Stud, but you were the first to discover Hulk Hogan and also the first to put him against Andre the Giant that record-setting WrestleMania three in front of 93,000 in the Pontiac Silverdome in Detroit, Michigan. That happened years earlier in Southeastern wrestling. That's where that feud really began. So, that I mean, that's pretty awesome. So, yeah. that card yeah. in Pensacola, Sunday night, August 20th, 1978. What was that like? Well, it was Robert Gibson who is, uh, you know, and was, and we, you know, was at this point, uh, but they're still out there doing it. He, he's, he was a future rock and roll express guy, man. You know, so he's going to become a, uh, and a, a, you know, a, another one of those hall of famers. Uh, and he was in the opening match against assassin number one. The wrestling pro was in the second match against assassin number two. There was a Canadian lumberjack match with wrestlers around the ring with straps to keep the guys in the ring. Uh, that was Dr. D David Schultz against Charlie cook. There was a tag match with Bob Armstrong and Tony Charles against me and Eddie Mansfield. There was a six man tag match with the assassins and Norvell Austin against Ricky and Robert Gibson in the wrestling pro. And at the end, there was a 12 man elimination match with $5,000 to the winner. Okay. That is six matches in all a four man tag, a six man tag, a Canadian lumberjack match, and a 12-man elimination match with $5,000 to the winner. So how did it differ from the other cards, like in Mobile, say, in particular? Okay, so, you know, the TV show was designed to promote both types of shows. Uh, you know, we realized that you got uh, three major towns. There are three major cities. Uh, that was Montgomery, Mo Mobile, and Dothan. 
and the cards and the cards in those cities obviously overlap with other cities in the territory, like Pensacola, which overlapped with the Mobile TV, and in Panama City, uh, they were overlapped uh, from the Dothan TV. So this TV had some major surprises in it, and it kind of opened and announced. Uh, opened with an announcement that the NWA World Heavyweight Champion Harley Race was going to be making an appearance in the Gulf Coast area for the first time ever. He was going to be wrestling there. He would be defending his belt on arrival against the Gulf Coast Champion, mm -hmm. uh, soon to be called Southeastern Champion. Mm -hmm. We're going to change the name of Gulf Coast to Southeastern about the end of this summer mm -hmm. of 1978. So, uh, you know, this show opens up with a special announcement about Harley Race is coming. Uh, the, whoever the champion here is is going to get the title shot. So, uh, obviously, that put a lot more emphasis on who was the present Gulf Coast champion. So, uh, that was me, obviously. So, I went to the set with Charlie and Gordon right away and took my belt. And then and I said, hey, you're talking about me here right off the stop of the show, man. Mm -hmm. I'm the man. I am your champion, you know, and I'm going to automatically get this world title shot. So uh, they pretty quickly shut me down a little bit, though. You know, they, they brought to my attention that I hadn't defended my belt against the number one challenger, Bob Armstrong, in more than a month. Uh-huh. Right? They were, you know, and I was like, you know, that would have... That would have stopped a whole lot of heels right there from having a comeback. But mm -hmm. but I said, well, wait just a minute. I said, that was his fault. I said, uh, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, he's been wanting to wrestle the karate guy, Ron Slinker, <laughs> for the last month. <laughs> and, you know, and then huh. I just made it worse on him. I said, you know, beating the karate guy, that's never going to help Armstrong be a real wrestler like me or the world champion, Harley Race. He just beat a karate guy. Uh -huh. Right? So, you know, uh, so they, uh, they end up getting the last word, though. They said, you know what, well, Ron, uh, you're going to now have to defend your title against Bob Armstrong, mm. and you're going to have to defend it against him this week. So mm. uh, Studio Pop, and, you know, they love the fact that uh, I've been pinned down and I got to I gotta let uh, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes have another shot. And uh, so I kind of stormed off the set and, uh, you know, that, that match was going to be in all three of the major markets, so me mm. against Bob Armstrong. Wow. So then the Gibsons, uh, you know, with their tag championship belts, they came to the set. So this show had an announcement, then it had me, then it had the Gibsons, and they came to the set and with Charlie and Gordon Soley, and they watched the last three minutes of a fantastic 45-minute time limit draw they had had with the Assassins the night before in Dothan. Uh, wow, a tremendous match. I mean, uh, the last five minutes of that match, it was nobody sitting down. And uh, they, we, we had about three minutes of that match, the last three minutes of it on TV. So uh, Billy Spears wasn't even at ringside in this match because if fans remember the last uh, cast, uh, Billy Spears uh, was barred from ringside uh, so that his team could get a chance to win their belts back. So, uh, so, and he had made that deal the week before uh, not to be in his team's corner and uh, if the Gibsons would give him that instant return match for the belts. So, in last week's show, uh, Billy Spears came out in the profile and got involved. Well, again, Billy Spears comes out and he interrupts the show. Mm 
as he had done the week before. And uh, he came across from the TV studio, which was on the far side of the studio, came from the dressing room over there, and he had another challenge for the champions. And he demanded that his team was going to get another shot at the belts, that the 45-minute time limit draw entitled them to it. You know, if you just watched them wrestle these guys to 45-minute time limit draw, uh, they deserve another title shot, and they're going to get it. You know, Spears was really adamant about uh, it's going to happen. So uh, Ricky and Robert just looked at each other, and they just started laughing. <laughs> Is this guy a joke or what, right? And uh, so, boy, Spears got mad. <laughs> he got all red in the face, and he, and he screamed at him. You know, he said, uh, hey, what's it going to take then for, for my team to get another shot at those belts right now, Right. So, so Gibson boys <laughs> looked at each other, and then uh, you know Ricky just kind of blurted out, you know, like how did he? I don't know where it came from, but he said, uh, he said, yeah, he says, uh, we'd be glad to give your fat boys another shot at me. He said, yeah, we'd be glad to give your fat boys another shot at the belts. He said, uh, and the studio popped at that line. They loved the fat belt. So Ricky continued and he said, we'll give them one last shot. If you'll agree to shave your head in the ring after your team loses. <laughs> so, <laughs> there was another big pop in the studio. They're like, wow, this is getting good. So uh, Spears, uh, you know, without speaking, man, he's. He, <laughs> I was watching this in the back of my monitors, and and he he ran his hands through his long head, long blonde hair, and he kind of ran his hand through his hair, like he was almost imagining what it would be like to be bald, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, it, but he didn't have to think too long about it, you know, about <laughs> about the being bald. Because out of the dressing room, nobody had seen him in years in that territory, came the bald-headed Don Carson. <laughs> he hadn't been seen in golf close wrestling for years. Yeah. And uh, obviously, he was always famous for his long blonde hair. Sure. And, uh, and he exploded out of that Hills dressing room, screaming loud as he could, No, Billy, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So the studio, the studio exploded. I mean, <laughs> they just went crazy. But for the first time ever, all those fans watching TV and in the studio saw a completely bald-headed and, and Don Carson that they didn't even un expect, right? And, uh, right. It was like pandemonium going on in the studio. At this point, the fans are all high-fiving each other and jumping around in the stands, and the Gibson brothers are laughing, and they're high-fiving each other on the set. There's a big party going on. So, you know, Spears, he'd already seen Carson earlier. When Carson arrived at TV, it was the first day he was, he was in southeastern Gulf Coast. But it didn't stop Spears from accepting the challenge of his hair versus the tag belts, you know. And he said, yeah, I'll do the deal. You know, if my team can't beat him, I'll shave my head, right? So the studio was already on fire. And uh, so the bell rang for the first live match of the day. Guess who was in that one, Dave? Uh-uh. <laughs> Don Carson. All right. <laughs> he took his bald head right straight into the ring, man. And wow, did they boo, man. They, they, the studio went nuts, man, booing him. You know, so uh, 
<laughs> it's a, it's a, it was a pretty good, pretty good way to get it around. Yeah. That's kind of how you start a TV show. You, yeah. With the, with the, with the, that. Okay. So what happened in the match? Well, the fans in the studio, they'd never seen Don Carson's black glove. He'd never had a black glove in all the years he had been in Gulf Coast wrestling down there. And uh, they were all buzzing about that. What's the black glove all about, right? And it didn't take long for him to answer that question for him. Boy, he loaded her up, man, behind the referee's back, and he knocked his, he knocked the young guy cold mm. with it, man, right there mm-hmm. in his first match. He won his first Southeastern Gulf Coast match and won it with his peanut butter, man. <laughs> Then in the second segment of the show, David Schultz came to the set and he watched one of the matches he'd had with Tony Charles during that week to try and get the TV championship back from Tony Charles uh, because the Charles had beaten him for it and they wrestled for it in the arena two or three times. So uh, he watched, you know, uh, he he watched one of those three matches that he had with Tony Charles in which he could have won the TV championship. So Charles ended up bleeding in the video. And uh, so in the video that in this particular match, Charlie Cook came down to ringside, pounded on the apron and given Tony the support that he needed. And it cost uh, to it cost uh, David Schultz to lose. So this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Pensacola, because one of those cards in Pensacola was David Schultz versus Charlie Cook mm-hmm. in a Canadian lumberjack match with guys around the ring with straps. So Schultz took the opportunity to throw in another one of those risky comments <laughs> about Charlie Cook, man. Wow, that almost scared me again after the last time, the watermelon incident. Uh-uh. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and Schultz said, you know, when Cook came down, he's pounding on the ring trying to help Tony Charles. Cook uh, Schultz jumps in. He goes, you know, he needs a good whipping, and he's going to get it in Pensacola, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. Wow. So David kind of sneaked in a little vague plug for that Pensacola Canadian lumberjack strap match with Charlie Cook. So, yeah, I see. I'm, I'm kind of seeing a pattern here, stud. You were getting the most out of your TV show. Absolutely. With fans and really never realizing. So, wow. What followed that? Well, Tony Charles, man, tore the studio crowd up again, man, with anyone with another one of these fantastic throws. He sent this guy skyward, man. He shot him up. He almost hit the studio lights with his feet. He was up so high. Uh, and then he pinned him, obviously. Uh, what a great win for Tony, who was just really, really getting over like crazy. Uh, then it was time for the personality profile. And it was all about Harley Race. And uh, we even showed the actual world title win of Harley over Terry Funk from Toronto, Canada. So you mean that match that Charlie Platt kept trying to introduce on the Southeastern Gulf Coast TV show when he was interviewing you, so the the first time you were ever seen in that part of the country, <laughs> that's correct. Okay, it's that it's <laughs> that particular match that never got played, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's the match we start ever studcast with, man. With pieces of my first that came from uh, pieces of this first Southeastern Gulf Coast East interview that yeah. I did with Charlie Platt yeah. in March of nineteen seventy eight. 
Wow. So finally then fans in this personality profile get to finally see that world title match between Terry Funk and Harley Race in which Harley wins the world championship six months after Charlie Platt tried to introduce it for nine minutes right. with, me, with me running my mouth. Yeah. So then the assassin, they got a TV win in the third match. The assassins, uh, you know, and they were going to be <laughs> headed into this match in which uh, Billy Spears' hair was going to be on the line. And then, um, oh, Mr. Goody Two Shoes, he closed out the show again. <laughs> All right. So I thought earlier in this studcast stud that when you laid out the Southeastern Knoxville TV, that there was no way the Gulf Coast TV would compete this week. I think now I was very wrong on that. So the South, so the Southern Territory was really rocking, just like the Northern one. What was the results? The Pensacola event. Let's go to Sunday, August 20th, 1978. Well, you had the assassin number two, and he beat the wrestling pro. Uh, Robert Gibson and assassin number one, they wrestled to a 20-minute draw. Uh, David Schultz in the third match of the night won the Canadian lumberjack strap match over Charles Charlie Cook uh, with a little help from me. And uh, then Tony Charles got the pin on Eddie Mansfield in the tag match. That included me uh, and Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, Bob Armstrong. We were both in that match. Uh, that was a tag match. <laughs> then there was a six-man tag. And the Assassins of Norville Austin, managed by Billy Spears, they got a win over the Gibson brothers and the wrestling pro. Then Mr. Goody Two-Shoes won the 12-man elimination match and the money uh, because Charlie Cook kind of got even with me for my interference on his match earlier in the night. I caused him to lose to, to Schultz. So uh, he had an opportunity. It was me in the finals uh, there, uh, the last two in the elimination match against Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. And uh, Charlie Cook come down, and he, and he cost me a win and the money. Okay, so what was the attendance in Pensacola for that big night of matches? I often wondered how that city was compared to Mobile since they were so close together. Well, the crowd there was almost 4,000, man. Uh, Pensacola was a major market, but only secondary to Mobile because it was a slightly smaller city than Mobile. And Mobile was just such a fantastic city for wrestling. And, and it always had been since my father built his first territory there, started his first territory there in 1954 as a promoter. And uh, Pensacola had its own TV station. And as time went by, they were going to want wrestling on that TV station in Pensacola, just as WKRG Television, Channel 5, and Mobile. So in 1983, to keep somebody else from putting a show on the Pensacola TV station, we started doing a backup TV to cover markets in the territory that were scrambling to find their own wrestling shows. And they were scrambling to find their own wrestling shows because our ratings were we're going to be huge. Mm -hmm. So uh, so we started shooting video in every major city uh, to be used on TV stations that were eager to get that second show, I called it. Uh, mm -hmm. the, not the regular show, but the backup show. Uh, it's called the Best of Southeastern. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it became the backup show, a very popular show. It had great ratings, man. And we produced it in the same 
WTVY studio in Dothan that we produced the regular Southeastern show. Mm -hmm. So, but there was no similarity between these two shows and the Southeastern show. Uh, but it's ratings, their rate, their ratings were pretty, <laughs> they, they were competitive, you know, in these, in these markets. Uh, so, um, mm. there was a reason for it, man. That had to be way ahead of your time, Ron. I assume if you didn't get something on those TV stations looking for it, then you might've been jeopardizing really even your future. Uh, that's a fact. You know, uh, it, it was obviously better to compete with myself than somebody else. Hmm. Right. Hmm. So I found that out. As a matter of fact, Dave, uh, 43 years earlier in 1979. Hmm. So we're going to go be right back in the middle of the Knoxville war, man. When, when the stud cast get into 1979, uh, uh, this all kind of keeps leading back to 1979 the way. Hmm. All right. I know. I seem to say this a lot at the end of these studcasts, but this one really does have so much in it. We are going to add even more now as you answer another learning tree question. We are going to get to it. This one comes from Tom Watkins. He says, were the fans aware when wrestlers suddenly disappeared from Knoxville in 1978 that many of them were down on the Gulf Coast? And was that what you wanted? Wow. You know, we got some very sharp listeners, Dave. <laughs> wow, that's a great question. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Watkins, I think Watkins, Mr. Yep. Watkins. Uh, I spoke earlier in this studcast about my original two territories plan in 1978. Uh, uh, I didn't touch on this part of it, though. Uh, but I always love it, man, when fans beat me to it and they ask questions about something pertaining to the present time frame we're in. Man, this question is perfect for for where we are right now. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to keep the fact that there were two southeastern territories a secret in the beginning. Uh, my plan was I didn't think it, it would would be detrimental to the growth of the companies if fans found out about it. But I also wanted to, before combining the two, if that was ever going to happen, I wanted to book the two companies and matches against each other, sort of create a competition between the two territories. Uh, I, I want to run the Gulf Coast TV show uh, in Knoxville, right? And then right in the middle of the Knoxville territory, stick the Gulf Coast TV show in there. And and vice versa, take the Knoxville TV show and stick it into all the markets down there in the Gulf Coast. And then once a year, book the Southern champions against the Northern champions in these huge events at large outside football stadiums, as an example. Mm -hmm. Maybe draw as many as 50,000 fans in the University of Tennessee's Nayland Stadium right. once a year. Wow. Then down south, run one in Mobile's Lad Stadium. Draw another 40,000 down on the Gulf Coast. Make these annual events. Call them the Battle of the Champions. So uh, major events, uh, they, these would be major events, pitting every champion from one company against the other company's champions. Uh, I could have done a pay-per-view, uh, which was kind of my goal, yeah. with a potential, yeah. potential countrywide exposure, man. Sort of like Vince did, but don't take over everybody's companies uh, and try to own it all. Right. Just do it for myself, right? right? And right. in my companies. 
So, uh, so it all comes back to what's going to happen, man, in future studcasts. When the Northern Company, southeastern Knoxville, it starts to experience the competition in 1979. If I'd have gotten a little further along before the Knoxville War of 1979 began, I would have had my own competition uh, with my own Gulf Coast Company. And the War of 1979 in Knoxville might never have ever even happened. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's absolutely amazing stuff, Stud. This is, it's got to be one of the best stud cast ever. I can't wait. For, I mean, the next one is really going to be good to see where you go from here. All right, folks, I tell you what, on Facebook, the Ron Fuller Welsh Facebook page is full of friends. No more can be added to that page to become friends with Ron. You can go to his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page, like him, follow him there, and you automatically become friends with with a legend on Twitter. Follow him at Ron Fuller Welch. The website, the TNstud.com website is the one for Ron Fuller Welch. TNstud.com. It has everything. Great videos, photo gallery, every stud cast ever done. 43 three-hour super stud cast are all there. Only $2.99 each. You can shop his stud store for all kinds of souvenirs personally autographed photos, T-shirts, and his thrilling lion novel called Brutus. Southeastern Rewind on YouTube is a great place to find up-to-date info on Ron's fantastic streaming channel at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. There, 43 original Southeastern TV shows, 23 Continental TV shows, 38 stud stories all there, 12 great Continental Classic matches, 12 Gulf Coast matches, 5 stars of the sport, 4 superstars of the past, and so much more. Well over 150 hours now of old school wrestling entertainment like you've never enjoyed before, and it's only the beginning. Subscribe now at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com, only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year. It is the best old school streaming site on the planet. Don't miss this special offer right now for a limited time. Get a free one-week trial on ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. I think it's important to say it again. The best old school streaming site on the planet. Boom, there it is. All right, so where do we ride next time, Stud? This is going to be exciting. Well, Southeastern Wrestling, man, is getting a, a first-time-ever tag team Russian death match with Ronnie Garvin and my brother Robert versus the great Malenko and the Mongolian Stomper, and they're going to be managed by the masked jawjacker. And we'll also uh, begin to set up the fantastic first-ever two-night fan interactive wrestling event. One lucky lady is going to win, and hadn't said it up until this point, a mink coat. And the winner of the tournament is going to get a shot at the world champion Harley race three weeks after that event, two night event, two nights in a row, uh, never been done, uh, in any forward and form or fashion. So we'll also continue to look ahead to the Knoxville war, 1979, again, as we have been as this one, talk about the TV from, for the August 25th, 1979 show, get the results of the show and the attendance. And then we'll head south to Mobile, Alabama, 
for the August 29, 1978 card. It'll be me defending my Gulf Coast belt in an Indian strap match against Mr. Goody Two Shoes. Uh, also, uh, uh, Harley Race is going to be coming a month later to the southeastern Gulf Coast for the first time ever, and he's going to be facing the champion. So uh, this one is going to decide if it could be me or Bob Armstrong at that point. It's an all-star card, and uh, this, we'll also talk about the TV that promotes that card, the results of the matches, and the attendance. And plus, we'll hopefully get ourselves in another learning tree question. <laughs> So, and I want to thank everybody, as always, uh, for joining us today. We appreciate your support out there. Uh, tell your friends and neighbors about us. Uh, take good care of yourselves and others. And may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production. For Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.